and this is where the optimism for me comes in with the United States, is there is a level of political engagement that I haven't seen in my friends uh, in my lifetime. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. I've been thinking a bunch about character. I've been thinking about it in part because of Rod Rosenstein, the assistant attorney general, who went along with writing a trumped-up memo at the behalf of Donald Trump against James Comey, but then sort of turned around and appointed a special prosecutor. But he's really only one example. And it's this. Are people deep down good or bad? And this is revealed in the actions in the Trump era. It's revealed if they decide for the love of country to go into the administration and be the upstanding professionals who rein things in and then they're corrupted by the way that the administration works? Or could any good person be corrupted by going into the Trump administration? And I've increasingly been thinking about the latter. I, I don't think it is that we have these very fixed character traits and that we will be able to resist any kind of pressure. I think that anybody at this point who goes into an administration that is clearly so set on undermining the independence of institutions, on corrupting people around them. And this is one of the great skills that Donald Trump does have to corrupt people who he is in contact with are in danger of ending up like Rod Rosenstein did. And I think that that has a real implication for how we should think strategically about containing the threat from Donald Trump's administration. I think we have to insist on as many independent institutions which give people incentive to act independently and stop relying on the idea that as long as he appoints people who seem like consummate professionals from the outside, they're going to stand up for the things we value. It's my pleasure today to have Brian Klaas on the podcast. Brian is a research fellow at the LSE. He just wrote a, a great book called The Despot's Accomplice, which is looking at the way in which democracy promotion has failed around the world. But most importantly, he's just a really clear thinker about the nature of a threat we face in the United States at the moment. We had a really wide-ranging conversation about everything from the latest things Donald Trump did to rigged elections in Madagascar. I'm, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So welcome to the podcast, Brian. Brian, I sort of know you from two very different streams of thinking and writing. On the one hand, I just read your excellent book, Despot's Accomplice, which is about the way in which the West actually furthers despotic regimes around the world and fails in its ambition of promoting democracy. And on the other side, you're you know, one of the most vocal and clear-headed critics of Donald Trump with a tremendous Twitter following. I'm trying to think through, and we're going to each side of this, but I'm trying to think through how these two things fit together. In particular, I'm wondering, you know, a lot of the pieces we've seen in the last months about Trump that have gone viral have been of a form, you know, I lived through Chavez taking over in Venezuela. It's making me really scared about what could happen in the United States. And here's the things we did. All of those things didn't work. 
you know, don't make the same mistakes, right? And we've seen this about a series of countries, Italy, Russia, and so on. And so with your deep knowledge of how despots work in countries which have less of a democratic tradition than the United States, where democracy was never as consolidated in the United States, does that make you more or less scared about what Trump can accomplish here? Do you think the sort of basic story of saying, hey, look, Modi is moving in a fraternal direction in India, so the same thing can happen here. Is that the story or is it actually that it sharpens your eyes for how many more resources we have in the United States to resist an authoritarian takeover from somebody like Donald Trump? Well, you're, you're right to point out the two different uh, sides to me. And it's funny because my career has taken a very strange turn in the sense that I co-managed a campaign for governor in my home state of Minnesota and then left to study despots and dictators and rigged elections and things like that because I thought it was, you know, U.S. politics seemed to be boring. Things started to work sort of, you know, the way they should. And now, bizarrely, my two sort of lines of expertise have merged <laughs> in yeah. a really catastrophic way. It's a sad world in which people with expertise of Russia or Venezuela or wherever suddenly have this renewed political relevance in the United States. It's not something that any of us ever expected or hoped for. No, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, when you look at the rise of populism in the developing world, it's been around for a long time, the sort of divisive politics, the rigged elections, and also the authoritarianism. And so I'm optimistic that Trump is going to be stymied by his own incompetence. I mean, that's been the story so far of his first 125 days in office is that his incompetence is undercutting his authoritarian tendencies, but his authoritarian tendencies are very real. So I think what really worries me is that he's laying the groundwork for a playbook that a much smarter politician can pick up and win with. And I think that's sort of the Pandora's box that can't be closed is he is, you know, reasonably intelligent people are looking at this and saying, OK, I think I think I could do this, but I would be better, better at Trump than this. And I wouldn't tweet crazy things and I wouldn't constantly contradict my staff trying to defend me and I wouldn't be as inflammatory. And that's where I think that the sort of you know, the norms eroding by Trump's own hand could open the door to to much more sinister politics being taken advantage of in the United States. So there's one sort of distinction that lies at, at that you're sort of assuming what you're saying. And I think I agree with it, but it might be helpful for us to make it explicit and see where we really agree on it. And then there's one sort of strategic point that I take away from what you just said. But let's start with this distinction. So when I look at Donald Trump, what I see is somebody who has deeply authoritarian instincts, who has exactly the same tendency as Viktor Orban or Kaczynski to think that all opposition is illegitimate, that all of state institutions should um, do his bidding rather than there being some legitimacy and then being independent. We see that he always praises despots around the world. He always criticizes Democrats around the world. And yet he doesn't seem to be acting in a strategic or systematic way to pursue that agenda. He, for example, nominated Neil Gorsuch to a Supreme Court seat when he should have really nominated somebody who is just a clear partisan flunky who's going to vote for him no matter what. So he's making sort of basic mistakes if you're thinking about it from the perspective of the dictator's handbook, right? So the biggest fear is that he will eventually move in the direction of his instincts and that's going to be enough. But the hope is actually that while his incompetence may be dangerous in relation to North Korea, it is a boon. It is something we should be happy about in relation to his ability to undermine the basic constitutional order in the States. I mean, do you think that, that story gets it roughly right or would you put it differently? 
I think the general authoritarian impulses, I agree with. The thing is, I think, to an extent, I would say you're giving Donald Trump too much credit um, by comparing him to some of the masterminds around the world who not only have authoritarian impulses, but also an ideology behind it. And I think, you know, what's really consistent about Donald Trump is, over the years, is a few things. One is he's always had an affinity for strongmen, and I think that's a personality aspect to it. He sort of likes this idea of the, the machismo that comes with dictators. Another is impulsiveness. Um, narcissism is extremely important, and I'll come back to that in a second. And the final is, I think, xenophobic nationalism. I mean, you have him railing against Japan in the 1980s about trade policy, and he's basically saying the same things about Mexico and China today as he was about Japan. So those are reasonably consistent things about his personality and his politics. But I think you know the narcissism is much more deep-seated, I think, than some sort of authoritarian ideology that democracy is bad in of itself. I think democracy to him is bad if it blocks his agenda. And I think it, if it makes him feel belittled or that there's somebody who can stand up to him. Because in business, you know, I mean, that's how he operated. He, he just rolled people. He, he bullied them. And democratic institutions, very thankfully, are not allowing that to happen right now. So, I mean, I think you're right that his incompetence is a bit of a boon in undercutting his authoritarianism right now. I mean, what, what I think you are right to point out, though, is this is so far, right? This is only a small percentage into his term. There hasn't been a major national security crisis, which around the world with authoritarianism is something that is often a precursor to ramping up this sort of despotic behavior. And he's extremely embattled right now, which is when presidents and prime ministers are more likely to lash out and do reckless things. So I think we're in a dangerous period, but I think that most of that is that you know Trump really cares about looking strong and looking in control. And if there were a way for him to do that that was within the framework of democratic constraints, I'm not convinced that he would be opposed to the idea of democracy in any sort of ideological way, because I don't think he thinks ideologically. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. And, and the way that I've put it before is that he has authoritarian instincts, but he doesn't have a developed authoritarian ideology. Yeah, I'd agree with that totally. But the other point that you made right at the beginning of the conversation, which I think is really important, is, you know, we should think of Donald Trump as an imminent danger. But even more so, we should think of him as breaking down the kind of democratic norms, opening the door to a much shrewder player who does have that authoritarian ideology and who might use some of the space created by Trump to undermine democratic institutions in a much more radical way. So how do we think about winning the tactical fight against Donald Trump without undermining the strategic battle against that form of authoritarian populism more broadly? How do we pursue both of those goals at the same time? Well, it's a very tricky thing to do. I mean, I think, you know, Trump to, to an extent is a bellwether for this type of politics. And so I think that battling Trump himself in the sense that, you know, really going against the, the harshest things of his ideology and his agenda, which I, by the way, I mean, I think the shorthand for this is something like the Rubio test, where if Marco Rubio would do this as a Republican president, it's not as worrisome as if Donald Trump is doing it. And it's something that a Republican would never do. But I think that, you know, that being a bellwether aspect of this means it's really important to ensure that Trumpism does not succeed, because that is the warning sign to other people that maybe this path doesn't work. And I think that's and, really and what does it mean do. for Trumpism not to succeed? Because, I mean, especially right now, as we're recording this, there's a lot of talk again about 
impeaching Trump and so on. And I always have a sense that, you know, the only way to show that it doesn't succeed is for him to just fail catastrophically at the polls in 2020. And that, yes, we need to get to the bottom of what's going on with his campaign's links to Russia. Yes, we need to make very, very sure that he doesn't undermine the independence of state institutions, that he doesn't get effective control over the FBI. But the best case scenario isn't impeachment. The best case scenario is that the institutions stand up to encroachments over the next three years and then he's just booted out of office in a landslide. Well, I think that could be accomplished though in the midterms. I mean, I agree with you to an extent that a democratic rebuke is the strongest uh, rebuke possible. And, and, and this actually reminds me very closely of what I saw in Tunisia, which was where the ex-regime that was toppled in the Arab Spring, they allowed former Ben Ali officials to run in the elections without purging them or, or creating them as martyrs. And they got like 1.5%. One of the guys that I interviewed, Kamal Morjan, for example, one of Ben Ali's defense ministers. But Ben uh, Ali being point, the long-term dictator of Tunisia. Yeah, exactly. So Ben Ali, the long-term dictator of Tunisia, toppled in 2011. And, and one of his right-hand man, uh, Kamal Morjan, was allowed to run and then defeated with 1.6% of the vote. And that was the biggest possible rebuke. I mean, he didn't become a martyr. There was no sort of rally around him, which would have happened if he'd been excluded, right? So there's a parallel to be drawn from impeachment to that, where it's like you can make sort of this martyr out of Trump if people believe he was illegitimately toppled. But I think you could still get that sort of same uh, democratic rebuke at the polls in 2018 if it's one of the largest mid, you know, landslides in, in midterm history. I also i am worried about the amount of damage that Trump can do besides the sort of big ticket items like the FBI. And this is where I think, you know, what's been really startling to me, I mean, I, I don't agree with a lot of Trump's policies, but I try to engage mostly on the things that I think are absolutely against democratic principles. And those are what I tend to, to be most outspoken on. And what really worries me is, you know, how many people in tweeting at me or in, in, in emails that I get, et cetera, perceive me to be a democratic hack with a, you know, with a capital D for the Democratic Party for saying things like the FBI director should be a nonpartisan role. And so, you know, what I'm worried about is that in the meantime, if he has another, you know, 1300 days in office, as he's currently slated to do, the amount of damage to the stuff that we're not paying attention to is so enormous that it could really change the course of American democracy. Because, you know, the outrage factor can only really focus on a few things at once. And yet there's a full court press happening in every agency, in every administration. And all of those things can only, you know, we can only keep up with them for so long. There's so many things happening all at once that to me, the best possible scenario is that there is sufficient evidence that Trump obstructed justice or colluded with the Russians in a way that causes a Republican consensus to remove him from office in the same way that Republicans began to turn on, on Nixon during Watergate. Because otherwise, I think there's a real conversation to be had about how much damage this will be done to, to American democracy in the sense of there's going to be 30% of the American public that thinks he was taken down by this quote-unquote deep state, no matter how he gets taken down if it happens, right? And, and, and that's scary in a polarized environment, especially one that is so uh, prone to potential, potential violence and backlashes. I see what you're saying, and I absolutely agree about the amount of damage that's being done to the independence of institutions. I mean, one of the striking things about the FBI is that Trump had actually undermined its independence to some degree, that he had interfered with his Russia investigation. He had asked Comey to treat the investigations differently in some ways. And those kinds of things over time, I think, would have had a real influence on how we 
FBI acts. And in some way, only because he incompetently went for the ham-handed move of firing the FBI director and then referring to the reasons for it in the public letter, referring to the fact that Comey had assured him that he's not under investigation in the public letter. But we actually found out what's going on there. So if that's going on in the FBI, there may be lots and lots of other ways of undermining the independence of the IS, of different state institutions that are going on at the same time across the country. And so I agree with you that three and a half more years of this is is really damaging. You know, I'm skeptical that 30% of people are going to think that he's a victim of a deep state one way or the other. I think that the number of people who will continue to be diehard Trump supporters and think that he has been removed from power by some kind of unfair conspiracy is going to be, you know, 10% if he loses election in a dramatic fashion in 2020, and it might be more than 30% if he's impeached. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that there's, I think that there's a significant portion of people who would be much more prone to this sort of victimhood complex if you were removed through anything other than the ballot box. And I think it may be even more than 35%. I mean, I've seen his polling around 30, I mean, depending on which poll you look at, 36, 38%, something in there. Nixon was at 28% approval ratings when he was removed in 1974. I think there's going to be people who approve of him, no matter what. The question is whether they think it's illegitimate that he was taken down. And historical context is actually very helpful for this because we are in a more polarized environment than I think almost any time in American history and arguably more than any time in in American history by, by a long shot. But even when the Washington Post was asking the question about Watergate, they asked the question, is this just politics or is this a serious issue? And up until Nixon's removal from office, his resignation, 42% of people were still saying this was just politics as usual. So, you know, I think in public opinion, there's a lot of people who are not following the sort of twists and turns of every single thing that's said in the Oval Office to the Russians or the latest bombshell. And there's a lot of people who just sort of think that the system is more guilty than Trump ever could be, right? That what he symbolizes is a rebellion against the system. So I'm worried that that's going to come up as any sort of non-ballot box removal of Trump would lead to this massive backlash among his base. The only saving grace to that, though, for the Republicans would be that, you know, for the establishment, they're probably going to embrace Mike Pence if he survives or Paul Ryan if he were to become president with open arms. So, I mean, the scenarios become much more complicated when, you know, many of the congressional Republicans would be overjoyed to have any option that's Mike Pence or, or Speaker Ryan. And and that will muddy the waters a bit. But, you know, the question is sort of where the beating heart of Trump's base, the Infowars and the Fox News outlets of the world, whether they rally around impeachment will be very important in understanding how it plays out in his base. I mean, I have some difficulty imagining that any of them do rally around impeachment. But let's talk about the sort of wider question, right? As you were saying, that, that, that a lot of people think that the system is so corrupt and is so guilty that there's no comparison to the guilt or corruption of somebody like Donald Trump, right? But the problem is just that the underlying pre-existing way that we do democracy in the United States is so far gone that we need a bomb thrower like Donald Trump to to shake things up. And that temptation is always going to be there. And I really wonder sort of about how we can change that? Do we need a radical institutional reform after Trump is out of office, a real coming together? Is that ever likely to happen? How do we make people less hostile to political elites? 
and to the institutions we have. Because if they remain as angry as they are, and honestly, in some ways, for good reason, they are angry, we'll surely always live with a danger of somebody like Trump coming back in. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's sort of two angles to this. One is in terms of what his base would sort of be demanding of the system. What, what's surprising to me, I mean, I'm from Minnesota, which is, it's a solidly democratic state, but it, it inched closer to voting for Trump. It's got parts of it that are sort of like the Rust Belt, the Iron Range, the mining Northeast, et cetera, where Trump performed very well. And, you know, I think a lot of those people are not expecting him to deliver anything for them. They're just sort of sticking it to the establishment, which has failed to provide for them for the last three decades. And this is where the, the point that you made about this being a legitimate concern, I think, is a very legitimate concern, is that, you know, the average sort of American worker is not getting a wage increase for decades. Uh, the middle class has not been riding the wave of globalization that a lot of you know, the developing world has and also the rich in the United States. And I think that's the answer. I mean, I think that's really the answer is that a lot of people are pretty happy with the establishment when this when the system is providing some basic functions like the idea that when you work hard, you will have a safe pension, you'll have a you know the dignity of of work that pays more each year after the next. And that there's sort of these things that are part and parcel of the American dream, no matter how much of a myth it was before that I think a lot of people feel like they have lost. And this is where Make America Great Again is, I mean, frankly, a brilliant campaign slogan because it is this sense of nostalgia for sort of the white working class that, you know, you showed up to the steel mill and you you, you were never going to get, you know, the spotlight for it. You were never going to get praise for it, but you'd have a decent life. And I think that's the real answer is that the, the establishment has genuinely abandoned those people. They have not provided policies that cater to them and I also think that the, the real tragedy of Trump is that he's not actually speaking to the problem that they're confronting, which is automation. And, and that's going to intensify significantly. We're going to have a real test case of whether politicians, you know, sort of the Trump 2.0s, can get the same mileage railing against robots and machines as they can against, you know, Muslims and Mexicans. <laughs> but that's going to be the next stage of politics, because that's the, the reality is that all of these manufacturing jobs are going to disappear as a result of computerization and robots. I mean, if automated cars and automated trucks take the road, that's a whole other industry that's going to be decimated. You know, this isn't revolutionary. This is something where you can see it coming. It's not some sort of massive prediction. It's just, it's a slow burn. And so my take on this is that, you know, the Democrats got a wake-up call, just as the Republicans did. But the Republicans are making, in my view, a catastrophic long-term mistake in that they're doubling down on policies that created the inequality that's driving Trumpism in the first place. And it's very easy to see how in a system where there's no wage increases for decades for the average worker, how you turn to scapegoating, nationalism, and the rise of an outsider. So, you know, so I have a question about this, because this is part of my story as well, right? So I have a book, which I finished draft of a couple months ago, which will be out early in 2018. And one of the arguments I'm making is that a structural driver of this populist rage is the stagnation of living standards from one generation to the next. One way in which I'm interested in your work is to look beyond the context of North America and Western Europe. And, and there the story becomes more complicated. You know, the Polish economy has increased sixfold since 1990. The wages of average people really have gone up. Right. Whereas in the States, it's easy to say, you know, does the average American have a better life today than 25, 30 years ago? You know, not so clear. In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. 
In Poland, it's just clear that people have better lives today. The vast majority of Poles have better life today than they had 25 or 30 years ago. And yet you see the rise of a surprisingly similar set of populist attitudes in politicians. And so how do we explain that? Why is it that when you look beyond the context of North America and Western Europe, where the stagnation story is not true, you also see these populists rising? Well, I think that's where there's sort of this cultural nostalgia. I mean, I think in places like Poland and Hungary, that's where the xenophobic nationalism resonates even more strongly than the economic nationalism. So, you know, the, the places that I've done a lot of work, places like Belarus and Thailand and Madagascar and Tunisia, the economic story actually goes a pretty long way because they're not dealing with a massive influx of immigrants. There's a backlash against establishment politics that fails to deliver. In places in Eastern Europe that actually rode the wave of globalization, you do see, you know, I mean, Viktor Orban's, uh, you know, populism is much more rooted in this sort of cultural nostalgia that is, it's effectively white nationalism packaged as something a little bit more savory, but only vaguely packaged, you know, beyond that. But if that resonates so much there, and you look at something like Trump, who has both the cultural nationalist and the economic nationalist element, isn't that a suggestion that perhaps the cultural nationalist element is more important in his appeal than his economic nationalist elements? Well, I think it depends. I mean, I think it depends who you're talking to, right? I mean, I think some of the cultural nationalism would resonate extremely strongly with affluent people in Alabama, for example, right? But but maybe not as much with urban New Yorkers. But the economic nationalism with the taxi driver in New York might might resonate quite strongly. I think the one-two punch that he brings is essential for a country as diverse culturally and economically as the United States, whereas in a place like Poland or Hungary, you have more of a homogenous society, right? That's interesting. So the idea is that in a place that's pretty homogeneous and that feels that homogeneity being threatened, the cultural nationalism is sort of enough. And that's because there's enough people who share in one culture for appeals to that to carry a real winning coalition. Whereas in the United States, there are certainly people like that who you can reach, but you're not going to get to a majority. In order to get to a majority, you have to add people on top of that who perhaps aren't completely averse to that cultural nationalism, but who are activated by the economic side. Absolutely. And this is where, you know, the scariest moment to me of Trump's administration so far is not one that a lot of people would think of. And it's it's the speech he gave to Congress. Because I listened to that speech and I was like, this is how you package Trump that resonates with economic nationalism and cultural nationalism, but doesn't alienate the people who are alienated by Trump. Because the dirty secret here in Washington and around the sort of political elites in the United States is many people realize that what Trump is talking about is genuinely popular in some ways, right? The idea of scapegoating Muslims, the idea of jailing illegal immigrants, et cetera, even for minor crimes, those are genuinely popular things. It's an ugly truth, but I think it's true. So what you have to think about if you're sort of the Trump 2.0 is how do you say those things in the softer way, right? The way that doesn't get wrapped up with all of the crude misogyny, all of the, you know, we're going to ban Muslims outright, but sort of speaks in code, which is something, by the way, that United States politicians are very good at to activate latent racism and bigotry in sort of coded words. This is sort of, you know, the George H.W. Bush ad about Willie Horton in 1988, right, with insinuating that Michael Dukakis was soft on crime because he was going to let this black killer out of jail. And it's not overt, but it's still extremely powerful. And so, you know, that speech that he gave to Congress wasn't particularly eloquent, but it, it packaged things in a way that didn't have the sort of rough edges of Trump. 
And that's where I was really terrified that he was going to get packaged by his advisors. And what you found scary is that it actually seemed to move the needle, that people actually were responding to it quite positively. Exactly. I mean, this is the thing is the two the two days of his administration where I think he's been happy because he's been applauded have been that speech in bombing Syria, which which is why I am very worried, because, you know, he, he's a guy who wants praise. We're talking about democracy and he's tweeted about crowds 247 times, but about human rights once. And that was just to mock them. And then you have him embattled, you know, back up against the wall in domestic politics. And the happy moments of his presidency are the speech and the bombing Syria. And the worry I have is that the lesson he'll learn over time is to just listen to his advisors, which would make Trumpism actually much more sinister, or to lash out with military might in a way that receives praise and has the Fareed Zakarias of the world saying he just became president tonight, right? So that's where I think that he he could be a much more dangerous force. He just hasn't hit his stride yet. Yeah. Well, let's hope that he doesn't. Tell me a little bit about the ways in which the West should promote democracies around the world, the ways in which it shouldn't, and the ways in which it's failed to do so. Sure. So, I mean, my, my book is looking at the fact that we've had 11 years of global declines of democracy, and I'm placing some of the blame, not all of the blame, certainly, with Western foreign policy. You know, I, I have two sort of main ways in which the U.S. And, and its Western allies inhibit democratization and often act, as the title suggests, as an accomplice to despots. The first is very apt right now. I call it the Saudi Arabia effect, and it's effectively a very basic one. The U.S. is two-faced when it comes to alliances with terrible regimes around the world like Saudi Arabia. And, you know, the, the worry I have right now with Donald Trump is it's, it's becoming unfortunately one-faced, but as a cheerleader to despots unequivocally without that sort of hypocrisy, which actually, in hindsight, it's, it's good to have hypocrisy when the alternative is strictly cheerleading for the bad side. The second one is more nuanced, and I think it's where my work in Sub-Saharan Africa and some of the countries that you don't think about in foreign policy is more insightful. And I call it the curse of low expectations. And this is you know, the idea that the bar has been set so unbelievably low for democracy around the world, where you, know, you have these terribly rigged elections that then are called free and fair. And, and I've interviewed you know, prime ministers and presidents and, and people around the world, and they, they off the record will say sort of the same thing. You know, if I got away with it last time, why would I make it more democratic next time? It just means that I might lose, but I already got the benefits of Western praise. And, and, and the West praises some like atrocious elections. My, my favorite example is um, Azerbaijan in 2013 when the iPhone app they designed to release the results of the election accidentally uploaded the results the day before the voting took place. And still congressional representatives of the United States praised the election as free and fair. I mean, it's truly astonishing. They, they made up the results before anyone cast a vote. Um, and, and this happens all the time. I mean, it happens in elections that I've monitored in and you just see it and you, and you think nobody would ever accept the results of this election in a Western country, but we say it's good enough for them. And it just entrenches this, this sort of mentality of let's do the minimum possible to be called a democracy, which is why I call, I, I've coined this term counterfeit democracy, which I think is what the majority of the world is. So, um, so, so, and you sort of explain quite nicely in the book how it is that it comes to be, because that just sounds sort of incredibly bizarre and cynical, right? Like, why would these Western election observers decide that the election in Azerbaijan is, um, is legitimate when it's so obvious that it isn't, right? And there's sort of two slightly different reasons here. 
and I want to get at them a little bit. I mean, one is, you know, in countries who, which are allies and you have reasons to um, keep them close. And so you pretend that there's something uh, really democratic about the elections because it makes it easier to sort of justify your ongoing alliance with them. And and we'll get to some of the trade-offs that are involved in that because I think they're actually quite interesting and, and, and complicated for me to think through. But, but the second is sort of in some ways more trivial, but more understandable, more relatable, which is that... Um, you know, often aid packages are tied to certain democratic reforms or certain democratic progress. And so people who really are do-gooders, right, who are human rights activists to some degree or certainly development aid people are saying, well, we've got to say that this election was democratic because otherwise tomorrow a lot of the aid to this country is going to get cut and a lot of ordinary people are going to suffer. So how do we get out of this bizarre trap yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, my, my experience in Madagascar as a monitor was was extremely eye-opening in this because in 2009, they had a coup and the Western world cut off all aid to the country, which is one of the poorest on the planet, right? And, and they lost about 40% of their government budget in a week. And this caused bubonic plague to return to the island. I mean, locusts infested it. There were famines. It, was, it, was just, it was an atrocious uh, you know, blight of humanity. And so the 2013 elections, which were very hard fought for the international community to act as a broker for them, it was do or die, basically. And I was told off the record by one observer for the European Union uh, you know, that basically as long as there wasn't electoral violence, they were ready to, to say this was a good election. And this came in spite of the fact that there was no census done since the early 1990s. So like several million people were not even included on the voter rolls. You can imagine like, you know, trying to say an election's okay for the Netherlands if you know, a third of the country is not even on the voter roll. But, um, but you know, it weighs heavily on you as an observer because you think, okay, the next election is in five years, best case scenario. They've already had five years of no aid, you know, and, and if you condemn it, uh, it's a decade that they're just, you know, going to have massive human suffering. And you know that the elites are not going to suffer at all because they're extremely corrupt. So I think the solution to this is to have uh, jettison the binary system of free and fair and not free and fair, which to their credit, observers are avoiding more and more, but media reports still still embrace and so do governments. And to have something like a hundred point scale, because there needs to be a way to say this election was bad, but it was better than before. And therefore, we're encouraging aid to continue. And this doesn't happen. I mean, this is the thing is you, you, you either have this was a good election or this was a bad election. When in reality, what you're really hoping to happen is this was a less bad election than last time. And so we're going to continue encouraging you. But if you backslide next time, there'll be no aid. And, and that's the sort of carrot and stick approach that's essential. But, but won't, you, won't, you, won't you face the same moral problem the next time? Won't there be a moment the next time where it's like, well, this election wasn't really better than the last one. But if we say that, then we're no longer going to get aid and bubonic plague will return to Madagascar. So let's just pretend it's a little bit better. I mean, aren't you just displacing the metric you use? I mean, wouldn't you have to actually change the the conditionality of aid or, or, or somehow rethink the system in a more radical way in order to actually solve a problem? Well, I think I think that for one, I mean, the, the fact that you're pressured into saying this was a good election rather than this was a better election is in itself an important reform. But to your point directly, I think what also this, this calls for is more uh, non-bilateral aid that bypasses the government, right? So partnering with local NGOs increasingly, um, trying to, in, in effect, basically cut out the government as a middleman because 
you can give uh, you know humanitarian aid to countries without actually giving it to the government, and that's often preferable anyway because the government very often uses aid as a slush fund. So I, I think that's an important reform, and it's increasingly easy to do given how uh, simple it is to create transnational networks digitally, et cetera, and actually communicate with people on the ground. But I also think there's an importance of international norms here that need to actually be enforced. So an example is you know, with election quality, one of the easiest ways to determine election quality is to actually have all precinct-level data and match it up with the actual vote tallies that are reported on the ground. Right. And this is very difficult to do in developing world countries. And part of the reason why this is difficult to do is because very often the regimes release only like district level data. So they'll have, you know, 40 data points or 100 data points. And you can't tell if it's been rigged because you can't tell if there's a precinct with 130 percent turnout, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there should be international norms that are extremely ruthless with stuff like this, where they say, if you do not release precinct level data, you will not get aid. Right. And as soon as that becomes the new norm, then everyone will do it. So, you know, I think the the real problem with aid is that it's a moving target. So there's enough uncertainty with it that the governments push the limits and figure, you know, they won't actually cut it off. That This isn't the one where they're going to pull the trigger on it. But if there's an actual very clear set of benchmarks, you can actually get movement and the government can be enticed to do the right thing. Let's get back to the Saudi Arabia effect, because this is something that I've really struggled with in my own thinking. I mean, you know, it's easy to point at some of the terrible regimes that the United States and other Western countries are in alliances with. And both say, well, isn't this hypocritical? Doesn't that mean that we don't have sort of moral standing to stand up for human rights and so on? Um, and more subtly to say, well, obviously we shouldn't do that and we should, you know, just just, just stop those alliances. And uh, But on the other side, I do also see the force of the argument that you know, there are very unstable regions of the world in which any kind of stabilizing influence is actually not just in our own interest, but of immense values to to human lives, because instability means war and famine that are often even worse than human rights violations. And so when you have a very bad regime that is the devil you know, and you might be able to destabilize it, but you could end up in Syria. You could end up in an ongoing civil war of hundreds of thousands of dead um, and even worse human rights violations, you know, perhaps you better stick with what you have. Now, you know, you're in this sort of weird position between a utilitarian politics and and a politics of, of ultimate ends. It's a politics of means versus a politics of ultimate ends, as somebody like Max Weber might have put it in the politics of vocation, where, where whenever you think pragmatically in the short run, you say, well, let's just get dirty hands and, you know pay the price and keep aligning ourselves with these terrible regimes. But then in the long run, that creates these perverse outcomes, but we're not moving towards democracy. So how do we reconcile what I see as as, as a real trade-off? How do we, do we just apply the principle and say, it doesn't matter if there's stability in the short run, if this might lead to lots of upheaval and even civil war, we got to stick by our guns and we cannot align ourselves with these regimes. So how do we strike a middle way between those? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's the, the term that I use when I talk about this is the mirage of authoritarian stability. And I think the very the perplexing thing to me is I, I watched the Arab Spring. I've seen that without, with the exception of Tunisia, where, where I did a lot of my research, it's been, you know, mostly the Arab winter uh, for democracy. 
But the very strange thing to me is that now the consensus view is we just need strong men in the Middle East. The, the thing that's so perplexing about that is that is what produced the Arab Spring, right? Like the, the, this is the actual cause of the symptoms that we saw in 2011. Why would we go back and double down on the cause? And, and I think that you're right that there's a real trade-off in the short term. But if you continually back despotic regimes, you get what we have now, right? A really unstable world. I mean, I think the, the, the idea is that you try to push towards the outcome that actually stops this from happening repeatedly. Because when, when you get into bed with these horrible regimes, the consequences last for decades beyond once they collapse, right? So uh, obviously Syria is going to be a basket case for a very long time, but even the US uh, animosity towards Iran is so strong because of how uh, integral the US was in backing the Shah and in overthrowing Mossadegh in, in, in the 1950s. And all of these things really resonate throughout history. So, so to me, you're, you're absolutely right. You need to have a slow weaning off, I think, of this type of approach. You need to signal with a very clear-eyed message that over the next decade, the United States is going to become consistent when it deals with uh, only democracies abroad and, and is trying to continually sideline bad regimes. But that comes with risk. And the approach that I do not endorse is the one that I've seen, which is the absolute no stomach for any sort of possible risk if there is the possibility of instability. And so you know, when I was in Belarus, I talked to Western diplomats, and, and they effectively said the same line to me, that this cannot become Ukraine, it's not Ukraine now, and we can't let that happen. And what they meant was Lukashenko is a dictator, but he's stable, and we're not going to think about possibly making this Ukraine. But you know, if, if every regime had that mentality, we wouldn't have a democratic Japan, we wouldn't have a democratic South Korea. I mean, these things take time, right? And nobody really looked at Japan, you know, five, six years after World War II and said, oh, it's a failure. So to me, the stomach for instability is required to make a, a much more stable long-term world. And if we don't do that, I mean, I think that the world is going to continually get darker because the stuff that we're backlashing against our politics I mean, multiply that times 100, and that's what the average person in the world is actually dealing with, right? I mean, a lot of my friends in these horrible regimes are saying, with Trump, you finally figured out what it's like. Hmm. You know, this is, this is our life. <laughs> we have no say whatsoever, and that's the difference. So that's a great bridge to, to, to my last question for you, which is that, you know, as I said at the outset, there's been all of these pieces basically saying, well, you know, here in Venezuela, we had a dictator taking over. We tried all of these things. None of them work. So don't do these things. Yeah. I haven't yet seen a very successful piece that does the inverse that says, hey, in this country, a dictator tried to take over. And you know what? We did all of these things in order to defend our democracy or in order to topple the dictator. And you know what? They worked. Go do those things. So if you were, if you had to write an article along those lines, what would you take from your experiences around the world, from the deep research you've done, to come to a more positive exhortation? What is it that we can do to defend our institutions um, against Donald Trump in the short run, but against this kind of authoritarian populism in the long run? Sure, that's a great question. So I'm going to draw in two experiences. One is from Belarus and one is from Tunisia. And the respective lessons, I think, are from Belarus to make sure the opposition is united, it doesn't splinter. And from Tunisia, it's to be inclusive even to people that disagree with you uh, and use the democratic process to oust would-be authoritarians. So I'll start with Belarus. I mean, the opposition to Alexander Lukashenko is extremely splintered. They're constantly accusing each other of being KG, you know, KGB plants and moles. 
And every single time, this splintering makes it so much easier for the regime to turn the opposition on itself and get its what it what, what it wants, right? And so I, I always am banging my head against the wall when not only uh, is the left turning against itself, but also the left is is attacking people like John McCain, who are actually giving principled defenses to uh, some of the aspects of democracy. Because you know, when you have a, an authoritarian threat, you take who you can get. And, and I think that's an extremely important lesson that we need to learn in the United States. With, with Tunisia, I mean, it's the point that I made before. There, there was a, when I was there in 2013 doing field work, there was a law proposed to ban anyone from the old regime from running for office, right? To ensure that nobody who is even tainted by the whiff of Ben Ali could ever be on the ballot. And, and they made a courageous vote um, to not do that. To, and, and some of the people who voted uh, to allow their, you know, the, the former regime to participate in politics had been tortured by the former regime. I mean, it's an astonishing level of political courage that seems to be, that type of political courage seems to be very much lacking in the United States. But I think that lesson of inclusivity and using the democratic process to its full potential is extremely powerful. And it gets back to the idea that you said about defeating Trump in 2020, or even in the shorter term, you know, rebuking him in, in 2018 is and this is where the optimism for me comes in with the United States is there is a level of political engagement that I haven't seen in my friends uh, in my lifetime. People who do not care about politics now care about politics. They're getting involved. They're marching. Obviously, there's a question of fatigue here. But the number of people who are going to run for office now, the registrations, I mean, that, that is an enormous success and a testament to the resilience of democracy in the United States. And so I'm hoping that the inclusivity of the democratic process and the involvement of people can be something where we don't turn against one another, but the people can try to find, you know, bridge building in the democratic process to defeat the most insidious parts of Trumpism. And I think that there are lessons to be learned here. I mean, there, there genuinely are places that have beat this playbook. And, uh, and Tunisia is, is a place where it's very, very fragile. I mean, it's coming out of dictatorship. It's got an economic stagnation problem. It has terrorism. There, there are more people going to fight for ISIS in Syria from Tunisia than any other country. And yet it's still a democracy. So, you know, if they can do it, uh, I think the United States with its longer history and much more sophisticated democratic institutions certainly is up to the task. And I hope I hope I'm right. Well, I feel like uh, this podcast doesn't end on an optimistic note often enough. So thank you very much for ending on an optimistic note. Uh, and, and thank you so much for this great conversation, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or on Twitter. Or as the summer season picks up, go to the beach, write The Good Fight podcast in the form of a sandcastle along the beach. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.